The T20 World Cup is around the corner for 2022 and we are about to talk all about it on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. The first round, of course, two groups of four. Plenty of action elsewhere in the Emerging Cricket world and here with me to talk about it as always, a clean-shaven Nick Skinner. Nick, how are you? Well, Bez, I'm very well. I've uh, got an excursion to a geothermal river coming up this morning, so that should be interesting. Um, I- enjoying the uh, the delights of Iceland, I guess. Um, how's your evening been? Uh, I noticed you had a lot of trouble getting online. Well, thankfully, everything seems okay now, touch wood, and hopefully the editing process is all well and good as well. But yeah, just a, a nightmare swapping laptops and things with a partner who has had a broken laptop for about three weeks and hasn't bothered to replace it or fix it, has instead been using a personal one, currently jigging up the work one in the hope that it works just as well. Fingers crossed everything is okay, albeit with a slight delay and wasting your time, Nicholas. So I do apologize. Uh, Looking forward to the T20 World Cup. We'll talk about it in great depth. I'm a little bit disappointed on a personal front in that for my nine to five job, they're flying me up to Brisbane to do some pre-event content for the Super 12 teams and that happens to be when the first round is on in two different cities in Geelong and Hobart so while I'm looking forward to you know the tournament and then doing the SCG games after I need to wait for the SCG games to watch first round teams uh, play in that so fingers crossed you know some of our favorites and some of the associates get through from a, an emerging cricket standpoint from a very selfish emerging cricket standpoint we see a, a couple of uh, overperformers again yeah gee life's tough being flown around to watch cricket yeah, it's it's reached the point now where I'm getting picky about the cricket that I have to watch rather than the cricket I want to watch. But look, beggars also can't be choosers and I'm pretty grateful for it. Looking at sort of eyeballing who could be here. Yeah, but there there is a couple of hypotheticals that we could have on our hands and, and a couple of teams that we know pretty well, potentially in Sydney if they were to qualify to the, the next round. So hopefully get to say day to all of them. Let's talk about the T20 World Cup first up. Uh, it's the second T20 World Cup in a year after, I suppose, a couple of different factors. COVID obviously bringing one from last year closer to us now, but also the new cycle of ICC events and whether we like it or not, it means that a number of these associate teams get the chance to play in a global tournament. And again, albeit in, in the first round, it's kind of everything giveth, they, they taketh. Although we do know from 2024, we'll get a 20-team tournament, although it comes with the caveat being that there's no global qualifier for that event as well. So again, it's a, it's a case of, uh, yeah, give with one hand, take with the other. But we do have some high of the highest of high ends of T20 international associate cricket in the offing. We'll start with Group A, Netherlands, Namibia, Sri Lanka, and UAE. It's quite a similar group to what three of these teams had last year. The only difference is that UAE has taken what Ireland's spot was in the last tournament. Ireland are in the other group of, of this tournament. would have been interesting had the final of Qualifier A gone the other way. We would have had exactly the same group. We've got the identical Group A opener. Namibia taking on Sri Lanka. That'll be a good yardstick. Uh, The Netherlands take on UAE in their first game, which is, you would think, a a crucial one for both of those teams looking to move into the next round. But to look more broadly to, to Group A... Um, we've seen some warm-up fixtures. Namibia claimed a victory. UAE also looked relatively strong. I know that they did lose to the West Indies, but they had some bright moments of their own. I'm not sure where we want to start first of all. I think probably the Namibia performance against Ireland is probably of, of best note, and Namibia winning both the match and the super over that they decided to have afterwards at the MCG couple of little points probably to make. The MCG surface did look a little bit sluggish. I don't think Geelong will be as slow. A clinical win for Namibia, but I guess to ask more broadly, what do we think of this Namibia outfit? There's a couple of questions that they need to answer from last year's tournament, namely, you know, the opening pair and and batting in the power play and looking to get off to a quick start. But I think on the face of it, we should see a relatively similar Namibian performance and they should definitely be striving for uh, another Super 12 berth, Nick. Yeah, it was interesting to see that game against Ireland where, gee, I mean, we can get into Ireland in a bit. They looked they looked pretty messy, but yeah, pretty clinical for Namibia. And I guess I would expect Namibia to beat Ireland um, more times than not in T20 cricket. And, and so it's interesting that that's kind of where Namibia's at, that, you know, regularly beating 
a low ranked full member, but still a full member is is kind of expected for them. Um, I don't know. It's a bit strange just thinking about this this warm up at the MCG. Why why are they not playing the warm ups in a you know where they're actually going to play the matches? I don't know. Giving them a chance to play at the MCG is nice, I guess. But yeah, clinical win, as you said, with the Namibian bowling doing the job after a kind of a middling total. But yeah, if it's if it's a sluggish deck, you know, we saw Erasmus go at less than a run a ball. Uh, Van Lingen kind of slow at the top, and and Lenny, uh, our good friend Andrew Leonard, posted this question about his position there, and I would kind of, I mean, I would agree that 50 over format is still his best format, and he has. Uh, he he does kind of take a, a minute to get going. It yeah, it does leave them with a bit of a, a dilemma though, because you know Bard is a similar player to Van Lingen in that you know technically correct, quite compact, but has has the aggressive shots when he needs them. But but neither of them are really that explosive at the top. So who do they bring in if they want a more aggressive opening partnership? Uh, last time they experimented with Zane Green, I mean he kind of shuffled all around. The batting lineup. I still think we haven't seen the best of Green at international level. He can really go, but he he yeah he he had a real shocker last time at, at the T20 World Cup. So they might be a bit wary of that. But yeah, I mean, then that kind of plays into their team balance. Where you know, do they bring in Lawrence, who's been pretty successful at the top of the order in in recent times? Uh, does Green then play as basically a specialist keeper and bat at sort of a nine, maybe even ten position, depending on their bowling lineup and yeah, you know the the Geelong deck probably not as sluggish as the uh, the newly laid MCG uh, drop in, but still not exactly going to be a, a seamer's paradise at least uh, from sort of past history. Who partners uh, Bernard Holtz with spin? Do they just keep you know Jan Nikolovti Eaton and Erasmus there, or do they bring in Picky France for his offies as well? Uh, I like Picky as a utility player because he can he offers a bit with the bat as well. Yeah, a lot of questions. Uh, it's kind of this is. I guess sort of the flip side of Namibia's um, depth is that, you know, there's a lot of guys that they could bring in and, and there's kind of some questions around uh, the, the actual structure. If I had to guess, I'd probably, yeah, I, I don't know. Green Green was playing in the warm-up game, so seems maybe they're going to stick with him, uh, you know, show a bit of faith, which which is nice. Um, and, and I mean, from a wicket-keeping perspective, Green, in my view, is the better option. And I've I've made this point in the past, but in T20 cricket especially, the wicketkeeper is the guy in your team who has the most opportunities to affect the game because he's involved 120 times out of 120 in the fielding innings. Whereas, you know, if you're bowling, you 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 can bowl 24 deliveries max. If you're batting, the most anyone's ever faced in a T20 international innings is sort of 70 odd deliveries. Whereas, yeah, the keeper's there every ball, so. I think picking your best keeper is is very important in in T20. Well, I mean in all cricket, but in T20 especially. So in that sense, I, I would be backing Green. But yeah, it does create some combination problems. Interesting to see Smith bowling again though, which is promising because it gives him a few more options. And of course, Frylink as well is another guy who can hit the ball as well as uh, you know as well setting it down. So yeah, I think Shikongo might well get squeezed out, even though he bowled quite well in the warm up. But yeah, to, to get back to the question at the top of the order, I don't know if they go with Bard and Van Lingen. That, that's kind of a that, that's a slightly old-fashioned opening combination of two guys who sort of get set and then go hard. Whereas these days, you know, you really do need to be targeting that power play, which uh, I, I'm not convinced uh, a Van Lingen Bard opening combination will will be able to do as effectively. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm just looking at at this potential lineup, and the green question is interesting. And I would say that him keeping in that practice match would indicate that they will play him and I think they'll probably just slide him down to the very end of the order to be kind of a a decent sort of Swiss army knife at the end of an innings if they do lose plenty of wickets because the likes of Jan Freilink and Ruben Trumpelman can even you know hold the bat so they shouldn't really have too much issues there and and the batting lineup is fairly long I think it's a burning question of Namibia as to what they do at the top of the order I mean I think Bard kind of gives you a nice little platform and I know that the term anchor is kind of an unsexy thing in T20 cricket but I actually think Namibia are a case where it almost makes sense to have an anchor because you've got three four five and six who all can hit at almost 150 strike rate Michael Van Lingen played a couple of really nice shots in the in the training game in the warm-up match there I would be interested to know if Devon Lecoq is 
banging down the door of playing in this team at the top of the order as well. I do know that they gave him that game that innings in the warm-up. Michael Van Lingen, I think, has potential of going at quite a clip if he does get going. It's just a little bit risky as to how reliable you think it is. But Yeah, no, I mean, we've, we've seen him. Yeah, he's got the shots and, and we've seen him play some innings, more so in 50 over cricket, where he does get going. But, uh, you know, a lot of the time that's he, he sort of sets himself and then goes hard towards the back end, which um, that's kind of more, uh, again, as I was saying, that's just, that's more or less how Stefan Bard plays a lot of the time as well. So they're two very similar guys at the top, which is maybe not necessarily what you want. So, I mean, yeah, potentially you, you slot Van Lingen down um, and, and sort of have him there as cover if they lose early wickets. One thing to note there, and I I did notice it in your pronunciation of his name, whether you did it by intention or not, that uh, Stephen Barnes' name across Crick Info and Wikipedia is still wrong after we had it confirmed by oh, his old yes. boy yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <sighs> back in, in 2019. Still has not been changed. I, such I still as, always get mixed up with that. <laughs> still such is, uh, I suppose, associate cricket sometimes. Is, uh, yeah, the, the batting will be interesting. And, and looking at the bowling, something for, for Erasmus to think about is that Ben Shikongo bowled well in that warm-up match as well. He took three wickets. Gives you another option because they are pretty lefty-heavy with the ball. I mean, outside of Visa and Erasmus bowling his offies and whether or not you go to Lofty Eaton with his whippy leg spin, Scott's left-arm orthodox, Trumpelman left-arm quick, Frylink left-arm medium-fast, and JJ Smith, who we know has been nursing that knee injury, has been bowling sparingly. You would think has been probably saving himself for this tournament. So... Having someone like Chicongo, and, and maybe if he only bowls two overs, again, they've got enough all-round potential in this group. You know, Visa and Smith could both bowl four overs, and it frees you up with a couple of other options. You've got Freiling, Trumpelman, and, and Skultz anyway. You give Chicongo two overs, and you see what he can do with it. That's one of the, the things about Namibia that kind of sets them apart at the associate level, is they have got options and versatility with the ball. I think it's going to be a toss-up between them and the Netherlands again to see who goes through in that group. And to be honest, I'm still toying. I think it's a, I think it's a flip of the coin. I think we can bring them in now, the Netherlands. I think the Netherlands are more prepared than they were this time last year preparing for the 2021 tournament. I think it's going to be stiffer competition. Looking at the Dutch team, yes, they lost Rant and Descartes, but you probably need to acknowledge that he didn't have a great tournament last year anyway. So whoever comes in you would think, theoretically, is, is kind of an upgrade. Uh, Cherise Ahmed has emerged as a leg-spinning option instead of Philippe Boissevin. Uh They've got a bowling attack that I think will really enjoy playing uh, in Australia on the Geelong surface. And it means that it makes this Netherlands-Namibia match all important for both of these teams. You know, Stefan Meyerberg is custodian of Dutch cricket. You know what you're going to get out of him. Max O'Dowd had a great tournament last year. You would think that he needs to do a lot of the heavy lifting again. Buzz Delater could be a point of difference in that he's really come along in the last 12 months ever since that T20 World Cup. If you look at his split pre and post T20 World Cup, it's chalk and cheese. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on the Netherlands too, Nick. They look to be a side a little bit more prepared, even with the loss of, of Peter Saylor as captain. Scotty Edwards comes in, and I know he hasn't played at Cardinia Park specifically, or maybe he has. I don't think he has, but he's got experience in Melbourne grade cricket, and he surely knows someone who knows someone about you know, the surface there in Geelong. So you got a little bit of local knowledge there too. Yeah, again, the opening slot is, is a bit of a question for the Netherlands. Um, they've brought back Steph Myberg, the veteran at the top of the order who who does go hard early and, and that's important because, yeah, as, as we sort of talked about with Bard, Max O'Dowd is another guy who he can hit it a long way, but at the same time, he, he does have a, a tendency to start a bit slow. So having Myberg uh, to go from ball one is helpful. At least that's the plan. He... Uh, he didn't do a whole lot in the warm-up game and he sort of struggled a bit in the qualifiers as well. So how effective he'll be is kind of a question. I, I mean, I hope I hope he does well. I think he's a, he's been a great servant for Dutch cricket and, and it'd be lovely for him to get another, you know, a nice send-off in, in what's probably going to be his, his last tournament, you would imagine. Mm. But yeah, then looking down the rest of that batting card, it's a similar problem to Namibia in that they've got a lot of quality, but where do you slot it all in? You've got Ackerman, Delader, Vikram Singh, you know, Rula van der Merwe coming in maybe around number six. Um, Scott Edwards has to come in somewhere. They've got Tom Cooper up their sleeve as well. So that middle order is going to be uh, an interesting balancing act. And potentially if, if Stefan Myberg doesn't fire in the first game, he might drop out and, and they, they shuffle 
things around to accommodate um, their, their star batters. On the bowling, yeah, as you say, they've, they've got a lot of experience and it sort of takes care of itself, really. You just need to select uh, three of the very good fast balls that they've got. And, um, uh, you know, Sharice Ahmed, who you mentioned, I think he's, he's come along really well. You know, he, he, he he's, I mean, he's still only 19 and he looks like he belongs at international level. So he's a he's a great talent. And he wasn't there last time. They had Philip Boisvan, who didn't even get on the park. So hopefully Sharice Ahmed gets an opportunity. And, and we know that uh, coach Ryan Campbell believes that every good team needs a leg spinner. And, and I think Sharice Ahmed is the answer to that question because he, he gives it a rip. He... he Lands it sort of most times, uh, but you know you can't expect a leg spinner to always um, or to always get it right, especially at the age of 19. So I think he'll sort of come through as as being a, a key a key player for them, especially again in these these Geelong conditions, which are not quite as pace friendly as maybe uh, the the Tasmanian decks. So that'll be interesting. Which of their quality fastballs they pick is going to be an, another question. Um, yeah, Van Beek, Van der Huchten, Van Makeren, Klaassen, Glover as well. So that, you know, you can't fit all of them in the team. Who do you leave out? I mean, I would I would probably argue that Glover sits on the bench from the outset because he's been, he, yeah, he's just been struggling for form over the last year or so. But other than that, there's still there's still more guys uh, that um, could very well do a job than uh, than can fit in the team. So that's one to keep an eye on as well. Yeah, the, I think this Dutch team is flying a little bit under the radar. I, I know that if you look at the results from their year, their calendar year in 2022, they were still red hot at the qualifier, even without a lot of the county players. For them to come back in, you would think that that only strengthens the team. I know that they didn't quite get the results in Super League cricket in 50 over cricket, but I think this format of the game suits them a little bit better. And I think they're all the more better for the experience of playing great 50 over cricket teams in the last year you know someone might buzz later again you just don't get the year in cricket at an associate level like he's just had where he's played uh off the top of my head new zealand pakistan the west indies and england i think all in the same summer right so to see how far his game comes along at such a young age so beneficial to have that summer that they've just had and you know, unfortunately, I, we can't really see another summer like that in Dutch cricket happening again anytime soon. It just means that this Dutch team, yeah, as we mentioned before, they're definitely better prepared than they were last year. Last year was a little bit of a of a basket case where, you know, we saw photos of board members of the KNCB in infinity pools <laughs> in Dubai yes. and... They struggled to get warm-up fixtures in, you know, if it wasn't for Logan Van Beek and, and the, the Dutch-New Zealand connection. I don't know if they would have played a T20 World Cup warm-up game at all. So, I don't know. I've got a, I've got a sneaky feeling that they, they do the business here. Again, I'm not willing to kind of make the decision of who wins the Namibia-Netherlands game yet. But, uh, look, it, it's as close. It's closer than it was last year, put it like that. And I think it's going to be going to be interesting. Yeah, just, just rounding out that point about their home summer and all the matches they played against quality opposition, you know, full members in the Cricket World Cup Super League. You know, they lost they lost all their matches, but they were frustratingly close a few times. They had a number of teams in a spot of bother. Yes, they got totally steamrolled by England, but that's because England is by a long way the best 50-over cricket team in the world. But, you know, they probably should have beaten the West Indies and they probably should have beaten New Zealand and they probably should have beaten Pakistan. Or, you know, it was more a case of inexperience than not necessarily having yeah. the skills. You know, a lot of these guys, as we discussed, Vikram Singh, I think he's 19 still, or, or just turned 20. Shariz Ahmed, as we said, 19. Tim Pringle, another 19, 20-year-old. Bastilators, you know, a veteran at the age of 22. Um, you know, so they have all these young guys who are sort of the next generation of Dutch cricket. And that experience, as you allude to, will put them in good stead and and it's it's just a case of them uh you know having to to perform in match situations and that's something you can't really replicate in training and yeah i, I think that experience is going to be invaluable and we saw basically in real time we saw that team and those young guys improving massively over the course of their home summer so yeah as you say I, i'm excited for this dutch team i, I think yeah gee it's, it's tough to pick isn't it because namibia are a quality as well and anything can happen in, in these games i guess i mean f- from the emerging cricket perspective the ideal would be that the netherlands and uh, and namibia and or uae uh, both go through and, and sri lanka miss out but um yeah we, we can get to it in a sec but i don't think that's likely looking at this sri lanka team 
Looking at UAE, and we've mentioned the captaincy change. If you haven't heard us talk about it, uh, there are several episodes where it's been brought up and we've talked about it for minutes, if not hours. To bring it to the tournament, it seems the body language of the group seems good. Uh, just watching on in, in Melbourne and even Ahmed Raza decided to mark himself up uh, for a training session that the ICC did a video of, which was actually quite cool. Looks in good spirits. The team performed okay, as mentioned in that warm-up game against the West Indies. Uh, Frida Aravin looked sharp behind the stumps. Uh, Muhammad Wazim only knows one way with the bat. He was tested after a lot of uh, players fell around him in that warm-up game, but we know how destructive he can be. And the ICC rankings, they might not tell the whole truth, but they don't really tell a lie with someone like Muhammad Wazim, who's been so important for the UAE in their campaigns over the last few years. An interesting one, I would dare say, we talked about leg spinners with the Netherlands and Shariz Ahmed. You would think that Karthik Mayapan gets a go, and whether or not that's at the expense of Ahmed Raza uh, himself, we will see. But Junaid Sadiq took five wickets in the warm-up game, so he's liking at least the junction oval part of Melbourne. They're tinkering a little bit with Vrida Aravin in the batting order, whether they want him at three or four. I think the higher you get him up, the better the, the better results you're probably going to get with someone like Vrida Aravin. Chirag Suri's consistent. CP Rizbon, there's probably question marks with the bat. Uh, but they've got, you know, the, the likes of Basil Hamid a little bit later on in the innings. I suppose the other big question is, you know, how do you fill the void of Ron Mustafa? One, just not being in the 11, but again, a bit of a head-scratcher as to how he missed out in the squad in the first place. Not just how he missed out in the squad, but how do you how do you replace him in terms of his uh, all-round capacity and the flexibility offers, you know, as one of their key batters and as a guy who you usually expect to bowl four overs of a uh, very thrifty spin? You know, how do you replace that? Armand Raza, as you say, I can't imagine. I mean, I say I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine it because I've done it before. But, um, you know, in, in normal circumstances, I don't see why you would drop Ahmad Raza because he's he's one of the most reliable spin bowlers going around the associate world uh, with his, his left arm orthodox. Whereas, yeah, Karthik Mayapan is a, a phenomenal talent, but he's he's also, he's a bit more hittable. And again, this is where Rohan Mustafa comes into it. If if the opposition is getting away from you, you bring on Mustafa and he'll he'll put a lid on things for four overs and they, they don't have that. And yeah, it, baffling decision, uh, baffling decision to strip the captaincy of Ahmed Raza and, and give it to CP Rizwan, who, as you mentioned, is still kind of struggling a bit with the bat. Yeah, very, very strange. But the, the big question, I guess, is whether they can put all that off-field, I don't know, unease, I would say. There was an unease to some of their outings. Yeah, it's a fair. It's uh, a f- bilateral stuff and, and the Asia Cup. They just looked like they weren't pulling all in the same direction. So, if they can get it all together, they will be a real threat, as we saw. You know, they had the West Indies in a spot of bother. Three for not many. Junaid Siddiqui, uh, as you said, five for 13. Um, so, he'll be, he'll, be, uh, he'll be key for them opening up the seam attack. But yeah, where where do they find those extra overs? Do you play Raza and Mayapan? That's potentially a bit of a risk. Basil Hamid has taken wickets in the past, although I think he's more of a batter. Yeah, again, this is this is the problem with leaving out, or at least your best all-rounder, in Rohan Mustafa, because it just leaves a huge hole in both the batting and bowling lineups, and, and the balance is thrown out of whack. Not a whole lot to add UAE from me. I think they will struggle to get out of the group, and I can't see them progressing unless an outstanding individual performance or performances from the likes of Wazim, Aravind, and the spinners, because... I just don't think the conditions necessarily suit them and I don't think they've got the the playing depth or the playing 11 to do it. I could be wrong. There is potential there, but I can't see it in, you know, especially with the other two associate teams in the group as strong as they are. I will be very surprised if they were to progress. And just to kind of tie a bow on Group A, Sri Lanka, when we came into this tournament this time last year, we did have a couple of question marks. You know, the side was very young. The media were more confident about a result than I think the team were at the time. They were coached by Mickey Arthur, who has seemingly done wonders with the youngsters of that Sri Lankan group. Now Chris Silverwood's at the helm. They've won the Asia Cup almost out of nowhere. They've definitely got the young talent to probably give the whole tournament a shake and not just breeze through the first round. I can't see them losing a match. And, you know, saying that as as someone who is such a fan of associate cricket is hard to say. I think they'll be, be pushed in some regards, but 
it would take something special from any of the other three teams, I think, to beat Sri Lanka. I think it might just be a case of, of fighting for, for second place. Yeah, I agree. I think we were a bit down on them last year and, and they certainly proved me wrong. But I mean, that was partly because, you know, you look at the rankings cut off and, and how they missed out on direct qualification. They were genuinely quite bad at the rankings cut off for the previous edition where all this was decided. But that was, you know, that was a little while ago now and they've they've rebuilt uh, pretty effectively. You know, they've, they've got strike bowlers uh, with, you know, both pace and spin uh, they've got some dynamic hitters they're just a very good cricket team in the t20 format so I, I don't yeah as you say i don't see them uh losing unless you know we see something special from one of the key key players from the associates because yeah i don't know i mean erasmus looked pretty comfortable playing against them in, in that game sweeping and, and reverse sweeping and whatnot pretty effectively against their spin lineup but Namibia were kind of shell shocked a little bit in that first match, so hopefully they've um you know they've had a year to kind of uh, prepare for this, I guess, and and recover and and they'll do a bit better. But uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't really see where a, a win comes from from any of the other teams in the group. Looking forward to Group A that's being played in Geelong. Let's move to Group B and talk about the prospects there, the Hobart Group. I think overall a more open group. I'm unsure as to who will go on and actually top this group or who will miss out. I think it's very tough to predict. From an associate point of view, there is only one associate team in Scotland who did progress to the Super 12 stage last year, although looking at this group and at least eyeballing it, especially with Zimbabwe re-entering the qualification process for this tournament, it means that this is a much tougher group than I think their opponents last year. I think that's probably a fair statement. Start maybe with Ireland, the team who actually lost to Namibia in that warm-up game, didn't look at their best, although it must be acknowledged that Balburnie didn't bat himself. I actually think Paul Sterling might have been running things uh, in the field as well. They've had a couple of uh, injury concerns, uh, the loss of Craig Young. It's meant that Hume has come into the team, and that brought actually quite a bit of conjecture from the Irish cricketing community who were convinced that David Delaney should have been given a go, especially when he was out here playing Melbourne grade cricket already. But a player who bowls a little bit quicker, I think the the consensus in the Irish community is that Hume kind of bowls a little bit too slow for the conditions. They are a team whose pace attack at times gets hit around a lot. Outside of someone like Josh Little who has good variations of pace. Some of the other quicks in this team do go the distance, and the same could actually be said of Scotland to a degree as well. But to stick with Ireland, Paul Sterling's form into the tournament is a big concern. He really struggled in the Caribbean. Um, we know the pitches will be a little bit, I think, more to his liking here. He has experience, of course, in, in the 100 as well. He's made runs for the Brave. He's won a title with the Brave. Overall, a good player, good on cross-bat shots. But yeah, his form is, is one of, I think, a little bit of concern. Balburnie's speed with the bat is probably something to, to think about as well, Nick, as I'm sure you'll you'll talk about. And then Simi Singh is the only real frontline spinner. The other guys tend to get hit around a little bit. So I don't really know where to put Ireland, but they have given you know a pretty a good couple of accounts of themselves. They have beaten Afghanistan in a recent T20I series, albeit at home. I don't quite know where to put them yet, but it is a very tough group to predict. Yeah, I mean, Simi Singh is an interesting one because they've brought him in. There's no Andy McBride. Yeah. Um, they've, they've had Simi Singh kind of playing the McBride role of the all-rounder uh, finger spinner. But I think McBride would have been a better option, honestly, because McBride, certainly that qualifier was a lot more effective. Simi Singh hasn't really done a whole lot with the bat recently. I think he, he barely averages in double figures and his strike rate is not fantastic. So I'm not really sure why they would go for him over the bat. And I, I don't think he's any more effective than McBrien with the ball. So yeah, quite, kind of a strange choice to have him in the T20 setup. He's He's been a good servant for them in ODI cricket, uh, more so with the ball, although he <laughs> he did hit that um, that century out of nowhere against South Africa. Yeah, David Delaney's an interesting one because, as you allude to, he's, he's quick, he's sharp, and that's something that Ireland's, or, I mean, bowling kind of at the lower end of the rankings table often is missing, is just a, a, a fast guy. And that's that's why someone like Ruben Trumpelman has been uh, such a point of difference for Namibia, is, yeah. is having a guy who bowls 140-plus. Um, I, I know they have they have Adair, they have Little. They're not completely bereft of pace options, but, I mean, at least as a squad player, you know, 
bringing in Hume, I, I think uh, the Namibians are a bit disappointed Hume didn't get a bowl in that warm-up game because last time they played, I think he, uh, he well, he really went the distance. He got hit for 50-plus in a T20. JJ Smith took a liking to him and uh, hit a number of, uh, of huge sixes because, as you say, Hume just isn't really quick enough to threaten uh, you know, the guys at international level. Craig Young breaking down again, you know, I, I, I like Craig Young. I think he's a good player, but geez, he has a lot of injuries recently. So I don't know. Is it time for him to? Uh, is he not recovering properly, or is, he, is it time for him to pack it in? I don't know. But that's probably a question for the future. I think, yeah, as you say, Balburnie skipper of the team, but at the same time, who is is he in the best eleven? I, I guess he kind of has to be because Ireland's batting depth at the moment is, um, well, they don't have a whole lot of it, but. Yeah, he's he's a he's kind of a yeah he's definitely more of an ODI player or even first class player. You know, I, I saw him hit a double century against the Netherlands in the I Cup a few years ago, and you know he he's a great player, but yeah, maybe not quite the right fit for T20. Paul Sterling, you mentioned who was uh, we we kind of assume captaining the side in Balburnie's absence. That's kind of an interesting one because I I, I do wonder he he has filled in a few times and done a, done a good job. So I I wonder why there hasn't been maybe he's not that interested in the job himself and and so he's never pursued it. But I, I do kind of wonder why Balburnie's been lumped with it whereas Sterling is the guy that you really would put as number one on any Irish T20 team. But yeah, as you say, might have struggled a little bit of late, but I, I think he'll you know. He, he, he's a big event player, so I don't, I don't think it's too much of a, of a worry. But yeah, aside him, where they get momentum at the top of the order, I mean, there, there is this Tector, there's Gareth Delaney, you know, those guys in the middle order, but who partners with Sterling is going to be interesting. Does Balburnie open and kind of play that stable role at the top? I think we've talked about this before, but yeah, I think dropping Kevin O'Brien was, was a missed opportunity. I think he's still brought enough to that opening role that nobody else really is. Yeah, so I, I, that that was a mistake, but, you know, you can't dwell on that. Um, uh, so they'll have to find someone. Yeah, I don't know. Just They just they just look a bit messy. And, and in, even in those, I mean, I only got to see the highlights. I'm not sure what the story was with the streaming for the warm-ups, uh, but that's another question. Maybe maybe you have a bit of inside knowledge on that. But, but yeah, they definitely look messy. But then again, you know, at the qualifiers, they looked a bit messy before they pulled it together and, and, and managed to uh, make it to the main event. So there's a chance they'll do that again. But looking at the quality of the opposition, Zimbabwe, West Indies, Scotland, I mean, there's a pretty real chance that Ireland go winless in the group. Oh, there is a chance Ireland go winless in the group. There's also a chance that they go three from three, just the way that it, it kind of goes. Was, That's a good point, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think one point that I didn't really get a chance to make, you you brought it up, is that, yeah, someone like Harry Tech has come along so far in the last 12 months, and he definitely provides a bit of a point of difference in comparison to the Ireland team of last year. I think another question we need to probably ask is, was there a space just to have the experience of Kevin O'Brien in the squad, and if you need him to come in and play, could he come in and play? I know he's renounced his retirement, but in his statement, he made it quite clear that it was more that him not being being picked in the national team was the reason for him calling it a day. So Garrett Delaney, Harry Tector, they're going to need a big contribution with the bat between them. They are capable of doing it. I think, and maybe it's, you know, the romanticist in me that thinks that O'Brien could have still done a job here than maybe, but yeah, this group, I have no idea. Because I actually think that the West Indies might miss out in this group altogether, and we might get to them quickly at the end, which does open it up. Ooh, big call there, yeah. Because I think Zimbabwe will progress after the progress that they've made in the last six months, and Scotland now have the pedigree of doing it themselves. So Ireland are an interesting one, and I think they will like Hobart, which is another thing too. I think the surface there is somewhat similar to the climate that they do play in back home. Probably as close as you're going to get in Australia. (laughs) Exactly. So... Yeah, they intrigue me. That I'm definitely not going to rule them out just yet. We'll talk about their neighbours now in Scotland. They're sticking to the purple kit that they had last year, which you know was good juju for them. So love it. I don't know if you're a fan of superstitions, and that might come into their favour. Honestly, just just on the kit, I think Namibia really missed a trick. Yeah, they had a, a design our jersey competition. They had some pretty good entries, including from an 11 year old from Belfast Bay, uh, whose contribution I think was better than the actual jersey they ended up with, which is. Uh, pretty dull dark blue with some thin red lines on it which i was not very uh, impressed with you know if if you're going to go to the effort of running a design your kit competition 
I think you should at least choose the most interesting one that comes through there rather than uh, you know, playing it safe. And funnily enough, you now the Scotland's jersey, as as we as we heard last year, uh, Scotland's jersey was also signed by a, a school kid. So I, I think they uh, they really missed a trick, the Namibians. Yeah, the only thing I'll add is that stop press in the I think they were meant to formally announce it on the 12th and we were here we are recording on the 12th so i don't know if that's the kit for sure although if it's been sort of put out in the public it would be a little bit strange of them to to go to a different one so i think your point stands nick but it might just be something to to keep an eye on uh scotland on the field uh losing Cole kutzer who's retired from the format richie barrington takes the captaincy there'll be a couple of changes to the team you would think that someone like michael jones will come in and potentially open the batting in kutzer's absence uh they've also brought in brandon mcmullen who qualifies for the team now he's uh a south african who's lived in in scotland for i think close to four years now so definitely qualifies performed well at you know in western premier cricket he plays with sterling county uh, he's played well in regional cricket and he's impressed at A series and elite tri series that, that Cricket Scotland put on. Genuine all rounder. Have watched him bat a little bit. He's quite a tall figure. He uses a lot of his leverage to hit straight with a number of straight bat shots. Has quite a high bowling action. Will probably bowl in that sort of 100 and low 130s kind of region. If he gets some extra bounce, he might be a bit of a point of difference. Looking at the team, you know what you're going to get from from Watt with his left arm orthodox. One for 23 or four overs most likely. Uh, you're going to get a pretty good performance from someone like Hamza Tar here. So that's two bowlers you don't have to worry about too much. You've got a leg spinner all-rounder in, in Chris Greaves who was a match winner in a game that they were almost dead and buried in against Bangladesh last year. I think the sentiments of fast bowling frailties is probably something that we do need to echo for Scotland as well as Ireland. Batting is interesting. They need more from Callum McLeod in this tournament as opposed to last year where he, he didn't get going. I think that'll be a big difference if if he was to, to get a start early in the tournament. It, it might bode well for him. But someone like George Munsey, we know what he's like. We know what we're going to get from him. I think they're a pretty consistent team at this level and I think they'll certainly give you know this group a, a fair nudge even as the only associate team in the group I, a lot of people would probably point at them and look at them as a weak link of the group I, I don't see it that way I think as them as as certainly a, a perennial team for for second perhaps uh the batting I think is, is an interesting one you, you talk about yeah Barrington skipper he's been finding the middle Leesk has been hitting them nicely so they've got kind of the, the, the kernel of a good middle order there uh, yeah, but McLeod is definitely one they'll need more from. He's he's been kind of up and down of late. I think he hit a couple of centuries in in one of their recent tri series in ODI cricket at least. But in the T20 format, I don't think he's done a whole lot recently. Um, and he, yeah, he certainly was disappointing last time at at the World Cup. Munzee also is another one at the top of the order. He got a few starts last time, hit some absolutely massive shots uh, into the stands in, in Oman and at the UAE, but didn't quite get going in the way you'd want so i think yeah munsey at the top and mcleod in the middle those two guys are going to be uh going to be ones to watch for scotland you know if if they have a good tournament here they'll be very strong contenders to progress if they don't then that leaves yeah you know barrington maybe jones and leesk kind of picking up the slack and, and having to do a lot so uh, yeah that that's going to be key for them the bowling as you allude to a couple of good uh left arm orthodox spinners in in tahir and what but the vast guys is is a real worry you know it's kind of all very samey 130-ish right arm medium not doing a whole lot you know guys like chris soul yeah uh, yeah it's it's a very eh, bowling lineup is the only way i would describe it um there's not really that kind of point of difference like a um like a Ruben Trumpelman or, or even a, a David Delaney who's <laughs> who's not there for Ireland. Um, you know, a guy who can really uh, put a bit of wind up the opposition and, and break a game open. They they just don't have that. They have they have some steady seamers, but they're the kind of guys who really go the journey if if an opposing batter is is having a big day. Yeah, they're an intriguing outfit and it will take something special for them to emulate last year's success, but I think they are capable and George Munsey is one of the few players in the first round who could peel off 100 if things go well for him. And even in Hobart, where pace bowlers at times seem to have the edge, I think it's also a place that, that Scotland will really relish in, you know, in similar vein to Ireland, which definitely opens up the group, the, the two teams that many would probably consider the or the weakest two out of the four have the conditions almost in their favour. So I think it just means that this is a wide open group, as we stressed. Zimbabwe, I have to say that I've been 
incredibly impressed by Dave Houghton. And I think the idea of a coach in international cricket is probably a little bit overstated in some ways. You know, it's not like football where you have someone, you know, running tactics and and running substitutions and, and running the game for 90 minutes. A career coach has a slightly different connection with his team. But what you can tell is that as soon as Dave Houghton came into this lineup, everyone in Zimbabwean cricket has really bought into his concept. He, he seems to be a man who was with his finger on the pulse in terms of T20 coaching and short-form coaching, which is sometimes uncommon for a player of his era who, you know, likes to sometimes harp on about things were, were better, you know, in the 90s. But it seems to has, he has a really good outlook on, on cricket and the, the players have just loved playing under him. You can just tell the way that that qualifier campaign went for them didn't really look like losing. There were probably stages in the tournament where it looked like, you know, a team might have given them a nudge. Even at times, PNG looked decent you know, chasing against them only for a procession of wickets to fall. But Sikandar Raza, if he's not the best white ball cricketer in the world at the moment, he's got to be in the top five. Uh, There's good leadership, not only from Houghton, but, you know, Craig Irvine as well. Williams is an excellent player. I love Wesley Matavire as well. The bowling's interesting in that Blessing Mazurabani has not been playing. He's come into the team. He's been on county duty, but I don't think it would be a huge loss if he was to not play because they've just got enough sort of variation around. I think the only issue I probably would have with someone like them is that Sakana Raza is, is a great spin bowler uh, and they've got Ryan Burl as well but that might just be the, the bowling side of things might just be a cause of concern but you know you've got the likes of uh, Ngarava as well Charter if he's fit fingers crossed they intrigue me I, I think they go through actually I don't know what you think well first of all it's just um, it's nice to have them back you know they they missed out on the previous qualifier due to Zimbabwe's uh, suspension from the ICC, which was very unfortunate. And, and so that means they weren't able to even try to qualify for last year's World Cup. But yeah, I mean, looking at this team, there's a lot of uh, exciting talent coming through. I think, yeah, as, as you say, Williams, uh, Irvine, Sikandar Raza, that's, that's the engine room of their batting, that middle order. But yeah, Wesley Manor, very, very impressive the way he's, he's really hitting his stride in international cricket, he's he's been kind of a talent for a couple of years and, and on the fringes. But yeah, I think Wesley Mataviri is a, a really exciting prospect. He's kind of the the future, you know, the backbone of that um, that Zimbabwean batting lineup for for a number of years to come. The bowling, yeah, as you say, I don't know. They, they, their strength is definitely spin. Some of these seam options they have aside Mazurabani are kind of it's a bit, it's a bit Scotlandish, a bit kind of you know same same you know n- not doing a whole lot of different and Guevara's left armor, I guess. So that's a, sort of a point of difference, but yeah, not necessarily uh, express, shall we say. Yeah. As, as you say, though, uh, there's a, a lot of quality and a lot of experience. You know, we saw them beat Australia recently in Australia, which is, uh, you know, that's not nothing. They've got guys who can give it a real whack down the order. You know, Shumba um, g- gives it a go. Uh, so looking at their opposition and, and, you know, sort of how everything lines up, Ireland, yeah, kind of messy. Scotland, samey pace bowling who, who sort of come onto the bat quite nicely. Zimbabwe, as you say, I, I think are probably going to ha- gonna be able to do enough. Even the West Indies, uh, I don't see really any huge threats with the ball for them. So I think Zimbabwe's really experienced batting lineup. You know, they know what they're doing and, and, and they've got the skills to take on anyone at this level in this qualifier, qualifier slash first round. The, the Freudian slip. Uh, we, 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 this is the last time we have to deal with it so we can move on. But yeah, so I, I think looking at their batting, they're, they're one of the more more exciting batting lineups in this group, actually, even even thinking about the West Indies, who uh, we can get onto, uh, we're seeing some generational change. That'll be one for the future for, for Zimbabwe, the, the generational change with, you know, Raza, Irvine, Williams getting towards the back end of their careers by now. But, you know, f- for now... They've got a really strong team. And just on that Dave Horton point, you know, looking at it from the outside in, you know, obviously I'm not involved in, in the Zimbabwean setup, but one kind of thing that I think is, is pretty important for him is that he doesn't seem to believe that the 90s was was better. You know, you alluded to that kind of nostalgia around Zimbabwean cricket um, and, and their, you know, their golden era in the 90s, which is sort of what everyone remembers. But I think he, he's a very forward-looking guy. And, and for a player who came through in that 90s era, um, I think that's a, both a, 
a very helpful and and uh, kind of a little bit selfless in, in a way. You know, he he doesn't think everything was better in his day. He thinks Zimbabwe's uh, best days are ahead of them, and and he's really got the team to believe that. So, I, I think having that kind of leadership has been very helpful for for a team that for a little while was kind of struggling. Uh, for direction, uh, Rajput as the coach previously, you know, the fly-in, fly-out, tweeting about the IPL during the middle of a series. I don't know. I don't think that was really a, a good fit for, for Zimbabwe, to, to put it nicely. But yeah, Horton's a guy who really buys into the Zimbabwean setup. And yeah, you say he's got his finger on the pulse for T20 cricket. He, he's also keeping an eye on the domestic uh, setup and, and picking from there as well. So Horton has made a huge difference. And, and also... You know, just having that environment, it's it's allowed the players to really play their games, and, and you know Horton's kind of setting the direction, and and it's 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 really gelled very well. I think, I mean, this is maybe not the time to have this discussion, but what is a head coach for in international cricket? You know, that's kind of a a, a bigger question. That there's a few different options uh, and models, but no one really seems. To, it's not like football where the manager's role is is pretty well defined. Uh, we don't we don't really have that in cricket, and so it's kind of a vague position. But at the moment, what whatever Horton is actually doing seems to be working. Yeah, don't have a whole lot to add. I think they do progress, uh, and they've beaten Australia recently, albeit in Super League 50 over one-day international cricket. So I don't know how much confidence or how much they can take out of that, but you know, a win in Australia against Australia is not something that a lot of other people in this in this group can can lay claim to. Uh, one that can lay claim to it, although they are struggling for players, I think. For, for, for connecting flights? Yeah, well... <laughs> Look, I'm sure our friends at the Caribbean Cricket Podcast have plenty to say on it, uh, but Shimron Hetmeyer not even getting on the plane and then featuring in Guyana Cricket, look, yeah, it's not a great look for the West Indies. And I think in a Hobart, they're really going to struggle. I don't know where the runs are coming from outside of Nicholas Perran and maybe someone like Kyle Mayers who can flourish and look really good with the bat. I do rate their bowling attack. They have shown here on Australian soil they are capable of ruffling a few feathers. Akil Hussain's brilliant. Uh, Yannick Carrier is a great story in that he's come from nowhere. He's essentially taken ex-USA leg spinner turned West Indies international Hayden Walsh Jr. spot uh, from an emerging standpoint. I think they struggle to get out of the group. I, I might, I might put it on the record here that I don't think the West Indies get out of the group. Oh, big call. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think Zimbabwe should definitely beat them. The other teams, it's kind of more of a of a toss up because, as you say, <laughs> their their batting looks fragile, and you know we saw them be yeah three for not much against the UAE, and the UAE are probably one of the weaker bowling lineups in in this first round kind of uh, roster. But at the same time, they're bowling the West Indies bowling is way more of their strength and that's uh, kind of the question mark for, for a lot of these other teams so yeah it's sort of like a the very movable object meets the uh, the very stoppable force with uh, <laughs> you know, the West Indies taking on <laughs> taking on um, uh, Scotland and Ireland so yeah kind of a, a few kind of messy question marks around their lineups um I mean, yeah, the, the the pace bowling is definitely a point of difference. And as we've discussed in Hobart, where it's going to be a little more pace friendly, you know, obviously, um, Jason Holder is a very crafty bowler. Uh, Alzari Joseph, you know, these guys, um, Odean Smith even, who has uh, he's been kind of up and down over the last little while. But you know, they have guys who can exploit the conditions. And as as you also allude to, um, that they've got some good spin options. So yeah, but where do the runs come from? That, that's a really good question. Um, I think that's a that's a huge opportunity for a team like Scotland or Ireland to sort of restrict them to a manageable total and, and then uh, chase it down pretty effectively. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add. I think they will struggle in Australian conditions. It was it was funny. I saw, a, I think it was a Sky Cricket graphic that listed the top 20 T20i players of all time. I think there were three West Indians on the list and there were three players who aren't in the squad now at all with Gale. I mean, did he ever actually 
announce his international retirement. I don't think he did. He's in Dubai living it up at the moment. Well, I think he announced it and then unannounced it a few times. So yeah, it's, it's... it was a farewell that wasn't quite a farewell. <laughs> yeah, which is single-handedly on brand for him, but also really unpredictable from him. I don't, I don't really know what to make of that, but... Again, Sonu Narayan is another player that we don't really know what happened there and there seems to be quite a lot of politics in West Indies cricket. Well, my guess would be there was some uh, questions around the extra scrutiny of his bowling action, but that's that's being a bit cynical yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Look, we're not we're not the best people to, to talk about this subject and we'll leave the experts to be the experts on this. Well, yeah, I mean, go, go and have a listen to the Caribbean Cricket Podcast guys uh, and, and they, they do a much more in-depth preview, uh, which is why we can kind of be a bit more superficial with this one. The only sort of thing I would add is that it is interesting to see them going for, I guess you'd call it generational change, moving on from stars like Gale, Russell, Bravo, you know, guys who did all turn up at the last event uh, who, who aren't participating this time so yeah kind of yeah one one to keep an eye on is yeah how the kind of the next crop come through that is our first round preview of sorts i don't want to give too many uh, predictions i think you made it pretty clear there off the top of my head nick i'll go group a sri lanka i'm going to be a bit different i'm going to say the dutch progress in group a uh as much as i hate saying it because i think namibia are a great side um and i would not be surprised if if they go through as well. Group B is more open. I'm going to go Zimbabwe. I'm going to go Zimbabwe Island. And I don't say that with any confidence at all. But I will stick my neck out and say that West Indies don't progress. Oh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, predictions. I've never been very good at these. Uh, let's say Sri Lanka as, as the banker from uh, from Group A. And then yeah, we'll, we'll go with Namibia again, you know. Same teams to qualify as, as last time. And in Group B, yeah, I agree with you. I think Zimbabwe are probably looking the strongest out of all the teams in this group coming into it. And then let's let's go with let's go with Scotland. You know, I, I think West Indies have a pretty good chance of they they do manage to sort of scrape over the line. We saw them at the qualifiers for the ODI World Cup uh, way back in 2018. They scraped over the line. Against Scotland, funnily enough. Um, so maybe maybe this time Scotland can get one over them. I like it. Uh, we'll have our updates, news pieces. There's a couple of bits on EmergingCricket.com to get you through the first round of the T20 World Cup as well. So look out for them. <laughs> Quickly, we, we do need to maybe wipe the egg off our faces here, Nick. I, I don't really know how to put this, but... We were a little bit critical of Thailand's beginning to their Asia Cup campaign. They came out and uh, proved us wrong by putting in a couple of good performances and maybe getting a little bit of luck too with the weather, but they progressed to the semifinals of the Asia Cup, the Women's Asia Cup. I'm interested to get your take on them as a whole. I think there's still questions that need to be answered in this team, and I think you're a good person to ask about these, but the likes of Kano, who was banned from bowling, actually coming out and playing as a recognised batter, hit a couple of good sixes, looked a good player. Nata can chance him again a class above with the bat. But outside of that, and maybe with, you know, a few bowling honourable mentions, I weirdly, there's this expectation now of Thailand where I weirdly feel like they're still not at their best, even though they've got this good result. I don't know what you think about this, but yeah, I still think that they're capable of better. And, you know, they've been some great teams in in the past they made up for the uh the day that we had at olympic park where they didn't get on and they didn't get a chance to beat pakistan there at a t20 world cup but some somewhat fitting uh retribution for them in the form of beating pakistan yeah i mean that was uh that was nice symmetry wasn't it that they they didn't get their chance against pakistan at the world cup and they uh they, they managed to get over the line here same formula as always for them you know good bowling performance Got a run out in there to get rid of um, Sidra Amin, who was going on, on 50 plus. So, yeah, good bowling performance, good fielding. Tipok with a couple of wickets. Kind of what you would expect with the ball from Thailand. And then the batting, you know, Natakan Chantam, great innings from her, 61 off 51. Basically got them almost all the way home, not quite. Uh, um, but but the rest of the team was able to, to do the job and uh, scrape over the line to get home. Yeah, but it, it does kind of show their batting is... Yeah, it's Chantam or bust at the moment. You, you look at the rest of the team, and yes, Kano hit has you know hit a couple of sixes. It might have been against the UAE, but you know she didn't really get that many runs in the tournament. The you know that one innings from Chantam 
was good and and shows you know she's actually developed her power game and she's really the only one in this thailand side that can sort of regularly clear the boundary and that's something that's developed quite a lot over the last sort of 12 18 months to complement the um you know the, the famous cover drives she now is able to to clear the rope um a, a bit more regularly and that's something that uh, she wasn't necessarily able to do uh, a little while ago. The next step, I guess, would be bringing it all together with a bit of better strike rotation, getting set earlier. Um, you know, her tournament strike rate's still well under 100, uh, I think in the maybe the mid-80s. So, yeah, so other than that one innings against Pakistan, she, she has struggled a bit. And that's um, that's something that all, all of the Thai batters uh, have had problems with, you know, Naramal Chaiway, strike rate of 68.3, that's just not good enough, even if you're the so-called anchor, uh, especially since, you know, Chaiway has the responsibility of, of being captain now and, and sort of leading the charge. Uh, Chanita Sudarang, we, we thought she'd sort of morphed into a, a finisher, but that, that doesn't quite seem to have panned out. Strike rate of 90, uh, she hit a few boundaries, but yeah, uh, Chantam, as I said, overall strike rate, 83.4, Contraronkai at the top. Yeah, 82. She, again, a lot of these uh, players, are, they're, they're quite compact. They're technically correct, but they don't have that power game. And that's the point of difference from Chantam. Chantam is a special talent because she's still improving and, and she'll get better and better. The others, I, I don't know, have they plateaued? You would hope not. But at the same time, they don't seem to be doing anything differently uh, with the bat. And, and that's that's a real problem for them because, as we've seen, their bowling can take them so far. And the bowling, you know, looking across to that side, um, you know, put along with eight wickets has been very good. Sub five economy rate. Uh, Sonor and Tipok, very tidy, four and a half economy rate. A couple of wickets, as I said, in that game against Pakistan. Butcher Tam, again, tidy, although not quite getting as many breakthroughs. So I don't know if that's a, a sort of a concern with her form. But you know, where else are they going to get runs from if Chantam doesn't go well? That's been a question for a little while, and, and it's not really one that we're seeing answered. So... Hopefully they can kind of find someone in the under 19s program that you know they they did miss out on the women's under 19s World Cup to the UAE who are on the upswing but yeah hopefully at least one of those uh, younger players can come through and, and fortify their batting because I know we talk about it a lot but that that's <laughs> that that's just the perennial issue for them is that is that they their bowling and their fielding is more or less there and and competitive at this level but yeah if Chantam doesn't go they don't have a whole lot left in the tank with the bat. Uh, Chaiway, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what's happened. She, she, yeah, just has been very, very scratchy over the last little while. <sighs> I think, I mean, you, you say we're wiping the egg off our face. I mean, they, they've, they've always been a dangerous team, but I mean, they got into the semis, uh, so fair play to them uh, for beating Pakistan, but probably got a bit lucky with the rain, uh, not necessarily a good reflection of their tournament. And, you know, the result against India in the semifinal would kind of indicate that just quickly looking across to the other associates at, at the asia cup uh, uae showed glimpses but couldn't put together a winning performance like thailand did where you know everything kind of came together against one team um and yeah i don't know less said about malaysia the better they, they really did struggle no one even got 100 runs in the tournament yeah just uh, not not a good outing for them uh the, the golfing class was pretty evident uh, although, you know, that said, I'll never complain about there being more associate teams in a tournament. Um, so great experience for them. Hopefully it can motivate some more kids to stick with the game because, you know, this is something we, we talk about a lot, but domestically in Malaysia, they, they, they have enough numbers, I would say, to replicate Thailand's success, but they need to move, you know, the youth schools programs where they get good participation. You know, they need to find people through there and move them into the senior team to really make a, a, a more of an impact uh, at international level with women's cricket well, and men's cricket, in fact. You've hit the nail on the head there. I don't think I've got anything to add <laughs> to give them a, a mark for the tournament. You'd probably give them a, a sort of C plus um, as to how things go. And it'd be interesting to see how Thailand go. But in terms of the associate presence of the tournament, I feel like the overall development and the overall quality across the region is definitely growing and tournaments like, you know, the ACC Asia Cup is only a good thing for, for these teams as well. It just gives the opportunity to play against full-member opposition and it's just the only way for these teams to, to improve. It's a point that we make time and again on the pod 
uh, and the ACC is is the one sort of regional body that is able to do this at a at a good level and and with a high volume of games. So can't really fault the Asia Cricket Council with with what they're doing at the moment with a tournament like this. Um, to quickly. I suppose tie a bow in some of the conversations we had last week, the under-19 Division 2 qualifiers for under-19 Men's Cricket World Cups coming up, qualifiers in Asia and in Africa. Probably expecting Kenya to be victorious in Africa, knowing that a lot of the quality in the region better than them is already through, although it's uh, congratulations to Nigeria who qualify again, as well as Sierra Leone who have shown um, their quality at this level. And then on the Asian side, maybe one upset, of sorts, we saw Hong Kong go through. Maybe had fancied Oman at this level instead of them, although we did see Singapore go through as well, which kind of goes to show that yeah, that little region of, of Asian cricket in its own right is is pretty strong at the under nineteens level. Nicholas as well, just to finish up. Yeah, I think it would definitely count as an upset for Hong Kong um, beating Oman at home. Oman's development program, as we all know, um, has been pretty successful of late, and and they have a lot of uh, a lot of good talent. But Hong Kong, we sort of don't think about them a whole lot because they've faded a bit from view. They didn't do much at the qualifiers. They're kind of just chugging along at um, at Cricket World Cup Challenge League level, but they're not really challenging to get up past that. And uh, yeah, so they've kind of slipped out of the, the consciousness in associate cricket a bit, but um, this is a good reminder that they're, they're still around and that they still have um, still have a bit of talent coming through. I think that just about wraps up everything in the game this week. Nick, we'll talk to Tim next week to discuss everything that happened in the Pacific Cup as well, get his assessment of that, as well as uh, East Asia Pacific sub-regional qualifier B, which gets underway very soon. Uh, Japan winning comfortably in the first two bilateral matches with Indonesia as well. We'll talk about the qualifier on next week's show. Pleasure as always, Nick, and uh, we'll speak next week, I think. Looking forward to it, Bez.